Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Long lunches, strong cocktails, writers are notoriously reliant on good food and good drink. Take John Updike, for example. He worked over a restaurant, and he said he knew when he smelled 
when he smelled the aroma of lunch coming up, it was time to quit for the day. So he he would work from eight until he smelled lunch cooking. And don't forget Hunter S. Thompson. When he got drunk, he would just get a a, a garden hose and spray everyone down. And there there are great photos of Hunter sort of terrorizing my wife, who was all of five at the time. Today, we're chatting with New York Times book critic Dwight Garner about books, food, and books about food. But first, we're going inside the world of extreme carnivores. What up, primals? Liver King here. We just took down a Mongolian yak. And where do you think we're going to start? Of course, the liver first, because liver is king. That's Brian Johnson, better known to his millions of social media followers as the liver king. He and other meat fluencers have gained notoriety for promoting all-meat diets. They say that returning to an ancestral lifestyle has many health benefits. Anthropologist Munvir Singh investigated this claim for his New Yorker article, Red Shift is an all-meat diet, what nature intended. Munvir, welcome to Milk Street. Yeah, thank you for having me. As a kid, I had lots of ways of thinking about what I would call myself as I was older, but the liver king was never one of those things I came up with. So who is the liver king? Yeah, the liver king is a phenomenon, I guess. He is the executive of a number of meat, raw food, liver supplement companies. And his main tagline, his main selling point was that he advocated for a return to an ancestral way of living. He um, put out videos of him lifting incredibly heavy stuff, of eating crazy amounts of food, and he had a meteoric rise and then a correspondingly devastating fall after it came out that his you know, ripped body was not attributable to liver, as was his claim, but instead was a product of like a, a pretty heavy steroid uh, regimen. <laughs> Oh, that, the steroids. A little chopped liver, you know, on pumpernickel for lunch with onion and then steroids. This is obviously connected to the paleo diet. So I think we've all heard of the paleo diet. We all kind of know what it is. Could you just tell us exactly what the paleo diet means in terms of what you eat? Yeah, so the logic of the paleo diet is that the processed food that we consume is is nowhere near the kinds of diet that ancestral humans subsisted on. And if we want to be healthy, if we want to thrive, then we need to go back to that Paleolithic diet. And the Paleo diet is a particular brand of that. It's a particular interpretation, but that is at least the logic. That's the selling point of it. So you have a group of people who claim that eating meat is sort of this be-all and end-all. But when people looked into it, I guess it turned out that, you know, There's no such thing as the paleo diet. Some places it was mostly plant-based, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there are different tools we have for reconstructing ancestral diets. Um, You can look at what contemporary hunter-gatherers eat. You can try to do genomic evidence. And whatever method we use suggests that the ancestral diet was much more diverse and dependent on where people were living. Um, And it I think it's also worth appreciating that there are some of these case studies that the meat fluencers really like to put forward. The Inuit, for example, they'll say, oh, the Inuit are a hunter-gatherer population. They had nearly all meat or exclusively meat, and look how well they did. Um, but these are lifestyles that are actually much more recent than even agriculture. The Inuit have only lived in the Arctic for a couple thousand years. So even the 
all meat diets that meat influencers really like to point to seem to be just as modern as any of the agricultural diets that they like to to rail against. So there are studies, um, which I'm sure you're aware of, that do say that meat diets are positive. Harvard did one in 2020 with 2,000 participants, and the results were pretty positive. 100% of diabetics came off of injectables, uh, 92% came off of insulin, 90% improvement in all diseases, average weight loss 20 pounds. I would assume, though, there are equal studies on the other side which do the same thing. In other words, what do you do with all these studies which seem to conflict? Yeah, okay. So this was a study that administered surveys mostly to people who identified as carnivores. So on like Facebook groups, on on Reddit pages, and then asked them retrospectively to report the extent to which they abided by a carnivore diet, and then asked them for the health benefits on all different kinds of outcomes. And quite a, um, a considerable proportion of the respondents admit to not fully following a carnivore diet, like a 100% carnivore diet. Um, and so it, it's, it's filled with a lot of flaws. And I think that study has really been misrepresented in some of this discourse. So what's your, what's your prescription for people listening to this show? Not just the question of all meat diets, but... Do you come away with any insights in terms of things about diets that are really important, you think? Well, I talk a bunch about this book, Eat Like the Animals, by these two biologists who have studied for a long time how animals eat. And their general takeaway is like, if you eat whole foods, then you can trust your your appetite. I mean, an argument that they make that I think is plausible is that a lot of popular snack foods are designed to be savory, to create a perception of having some protein in them, but they are actually very low in protein and then correspondingly very high in carbohydrates and, and you kind of overload on, on these foods. And, and so their general takeaway is like processed foods is really throwing off all of the systems the, the body has for gauging the nutritional content of foods. But they also, in that book, draw on an incredible body of work that they've done on everything from like dogs to spiders to orangutans to baboons. So they're studying, just so I understand this, so if they're studying dogs or rats or spiders, they're studying what exactly? They're studying how does an animal decide what to eat. And so they start off the book with this example where they're following a baboon, I think, for a month. And the baboon looks to be eating randomly. Oh, it takes a little of this, a little of that. But when you go in there and you, you measure the amount of, I think in particular, carbohydrates and protein, you will see that on a daily basis, it's really hovering around a particular ratio. And similarly, if you provide animals with a diet very heavy one day in carbohydrates, they will seek out protein to balance that out. That is the general takeaway of all of the studies that they've conducted. And then their argument is that processed foods really throw this off. So where are you now? You've written this article, you've looked into the all-meat diet. Do you basically distrust every study and every diet? Or are some things you think bedrock truth in the world of of diets? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think this project and going into the literature on diet and going into these studies that contrast the lifestyles and diets of of um, non-industrialized societies. The main thing that I've come to believe are the two main things are, A, there are so many different factors, and it's incredibly hard to isolate them. And a lot of people have very strong feelings about what the relevant factors are. Um, 
And then B, and relatedly, like the best solution is probably one that is one of the entire lifestyle of the entire diet, not looking for any single solution. But yeah, I would be very wary or cautious about making any kind of declarative statement. Diets seem to be based upon what type of foods you eat, right? But maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. I mean, maybe the issue is the quality of the food you eat, the diversity of the food you eat, other factors in your life, like your state of happiness, the amount of exercise, how much you sleep. Maybe it's all part and parcel of a bigger picture. And to just look at the actual food groups you're consuming, maybe that's not relevant at all or relevant very much. It's all the other factors that matter more. Certainly, certainly. And and I think a lot of this interest in the paleo diet starts with this examination of people who are not living in industrialized societies who have great health compared to the average modern American. So like the Chimane, these Bolivian forager gardeners have like the lowest frequency of cardiovascular disease ever recorded, lowest prostate cancer ever recorded, very little Alzheimer's. Um, And I think it's very easy for us to think like, oh, diet is the main thing there. But there are so many, so many ways in which the life of the Chimane differ from right. from the life of modern Americans. I mean, even like how much exercise they're getting, how much fiber they're getting, the extent to which they're surrounded by family. There are so many, so many, so many variables there. I think just like the content of the food and the broad food group is just very salient. And I think there's a general intuition. You are what you eat. But I remember there's like an old Jerry Seinfeld joke where he's like at the supermarket and he's like, I don't know what to eat. And he's like looking at people who look healthy and he's like, what do you eat? <laughs> and I think that's kind of the intuition that, that we're often inspired to follow. Manvir, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chris. I had a lot of fun. That was Manvir Singh. He's a professor of anthropology at UC Davis. His New Yorker article is called Red Shift. Is an all-meat diet what nature intended? Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually, believe it or not, actually this makes perfect sense, I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, Yeah, right. Well, I like to argue. I noticed that about you. I like that part of it. But then early on, you know, I started cooking. I had one of James Beard's early cookbooks, and um, I got interested in that. And so I went into food pretty quickly. So you asked me, I'll ask you. What was your fantasy career when you were seven years old? I wanted to be an ice skater ballerina like Sonia Haney. But then, you know, obviously that went out the window. I didn't do very much about it. And then by the time I got to college, I pursued becoming a doctor, a lawyer like you, or a biological medical illustrator because I'm good at drawing. And I won the biology prize in high school for my notebook. Really? Yeah. Can I just point out the diversity between those three things is fairly (laughs) substantial? An ice skater, a medical illustrator, and a lawyer? Yeah, You've covered a lot of bases. I know. Well, part of it was I was a feminist. I'm still a feminist, you know, and my parents wanted to make sure that my sister and I both had a career. So I went for the big ones, you know? Like Ice Skater. Yeah, well, that was when I was seven. Come on. All right, all right, all right. Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, Roberta Holzer. How can we help you? 
My daughter and her fiancé have asked me to make their wedding cake. It's a banana cake with a salted caramel filling Mm. and buttercream. So I figured I was doing a white chocolate cream cheese buttercream, and I just can't nail the salted caramel filling. The main thing is the consistency. So the problem is the caramel is too thick or it's too loose? Too thick. When I do caramel, I just start with sugar and I put it in a skillet right, in a saucepan, no water. Mm-hmm. It'll start melting around the perimeter with a heat-proof spatula. I start moving that in towards the center. I find right. that really works well because if I have a light-colored stainless steel 10 or 12-inch skillet, I can see the color which is really hard Mm -hmm. to do in a saucepan sometimes. So that's how I do that. I get it up to the right color, off heat, add the cream slowly, and then you put Mm -hmm. it back on the heat because the cream will, you know, the sugar will start to seize. But the question is, to what temperature do you cook that caramel? What did you cook it to, like 230, 225? The first couple recipes that I was making, it was a little bit of water and the sugar. Mm -hmm. Now, the last one that I made used caster sugar, Mm -hmm. you know, a fine sugar. It's just a fine sugar, yeah. It's really, if you took regular sugar and put it in a food processor, you end up with caster sugar. That one, the caramel came out perfect, but it's just too tight. How do you know when it's done? Do you have a candy thermometer, instant read thermometer? I eyeball it. Mm. So when this recipe... I put the sugar in the fry pan. They said a nonstick fry pan, which I've never, no, ever no, done. No, 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 no. Please don't do that. No. See, but it you, actually you, worked. Yeah, I know, but... That's that's it, toxic. But you don't want to get that pan. If that pan okay. gets over 500 degrees, it's not going to be good for you, so... Gotcha. Right? Okay, but you said do it on a medium heat. Yeah. Leave the sugar undisturbed until right. it starts to melt into exactly. a dark caramel color. Yep. Swirl around like yep. you were saying. Turn the heat down and then add ice-cold chopped-up butter pieces, then add the cream, and then they say golden syrup or corn syrup, and then a pinch of salt. And then how do you know how long to cook it after you've added the cream and the salt? Well, the temperature is on low, and I'm just kind of mixing it around with the wooden spoon until everything is melted. I think that's the problem. I mean, you're obviously a great baker, but when you get to caramel sauces, you got to have a thermometer because what's happening, okay. I will bet you, is you're just mm-hmm. either over or under cooking it. So if it's too loose, gotcha. it's at 225 to 230. If it's too candy-like, it's over 235 to 240. What you want is 230 to 235, and, and you okay. definitely want an instant read thermometer and make sure you're— Which I have. Yeah, and just tip I the have. skill yeah. a little bit so you get— the probe deep enough into the liquid, 230, 235 right. in that range. Okay. Sarah? I agree with Chris 100%. I would take it to that dark color, take it off the heat, and I would just add cream. I don't understand the butter. You need the liquid that's in the cream too. I would just go with three ingredients, and I agree with Chris about the temperature. After you add the cream and it seizes up and you you know, you know whisk it and everything and you cook it a little more, then take its temperature again. What I'm trying to get is a consistency, like a spreadable consistency. Yeah, but you got to let it cool. Yeah. I think Stella Parks, who's one of my favorites, who did Brave Tart, 
He has a good caramel sauce yeah, recipe. She's great. And it's the three ingredients I just told you. And I've made that and I've made others with just those three ingredients. And what happens when you cool it, it gets spreadable. You know, it will be liquid to begin with. And again, if you want it to be liquid, you know, like say you want to put it on ice cream, then you go and warm it up again. But if you want it to be spreadable, like in your banana cake, you just need it to come to room temperature and or chill it a little bit. Gotcha. Roberta, thank you. Yes. Okay, well, thank you yeah, so much. All the I best. appreciate your help. Sure. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking catastrophe, please give us a ring. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Craig. I'm calling from Texas. Hi, Craig. How can we help you today? Well, I have a question about cheese for you. I live in a rural area. We're about 25 miles from the closest store that has, you know, anything besides regular old supermarket cheese. And I really like pizza and, you know, getting into doing my own pizza and stuff. And when you find that chunk of cheese in the back of the refrigerator... (laughs) How do you know how do you know whether that that's on the parm is, you know, like maybe salt coming out of it or that it's mold? I know that they use mold sometimes to make certain cheeses, so how do you know whether it's a good mold or a bad mold and can you cut off a chunk of it and keep the rest or so it's all about moldy cheese. <laughs> Well, let's talk about different kinds of mold. So there's, you know, mold is what makes cheese cheese. But in terms of the kind of mold that you're talking about, there's the kind that's injected into cheese, like blue cheese with the blue veins going through it. And so that should be there. That's fine. And then there's the kind of mold that's mixed into milk and put on the outside of cheeses, like the soft-ripened cheeses, brie, camembert, Saint-André. So that all should be there. And by the way, mold can appear, I mean, real mold, the bad kind, as fuzzy, green, white, black, blue, or gray. So lots to look for. The harder the cheese and the smaller the amount of liquid in there, the lower moisture content. A hard cheese like Parmesan, it's not likely that it will get mold any time soon, you know. But... In the case of a cheese like that, I would cut off the mold, you know, they'd say about an inch down, which doesn't leave you with much cheese. And that is also true, although again, it doesn't leave you with much cheese, for a semi-hard cheese such as a cheddar or something like that. If it's sliced or shredded and you see any kind of mold, you know, the blue, green, brown, toss it. You know, when I used to work in restaurants, we had this phrase, when in doubt, throw it out. And that is certainly true if it's sliced and shredded. Chris? I would disagree a little. I think a hard cheese like Parmesan or Pecorino or something, it's just not going to get down into the cheese. And your slice of Parmesan is probably not much more than an inch thick or inch and a half thick anyway. I wouldn't worry about it. I'd just take a vegetable peeler or whatever and just peel off the outer layer because it's not going to penetrate, you know, in aged Parmesan, that mold's not going to get inside the cheese. Forget about the one-inch rule for that. I agree with Sarah on a soft cheese, like a mozzarella or Monterey Jack. Yeah, just dump it, because that's going to get deep into it, and it's also probably going to affect the flavor. But hard cheese, like Parmesan, yeah. First of all, it's pretty hard to get it moldy. And secondly, 
yeah, we just take off the surface amount and go for it. Yeah. Also, okay. also Parmesan's expensive, so you can send me all your Parmesan with mold on it, and I'll just scrape <laughs> it off and use it. And then, and then we got a, we got a business deal. Right. So yeah, I, I wouldn't worry about that stuff. By the way, could I just ask? So you mentioned Parmesan. So what did it look like on the outside of the Parmesan? Was it just cloudy or something, or what? Well, when I first saw it, it was kind of granular looking, white and granular. Right, sort of, you know, lighter colored white and granular. And then, uh, so, right. you know, I just kind of left it in the fridge to ponder it, you know. And then when I, I looked at it again, it was starting to get a little white growth and then a little piece of green growth on it. And it's like, okay, I think I've thought about it too long. And <laughs> yeah, you needed to take action quickly. Yeah, you see that sometimes on Parmesan, but I just scrape it off. I think you were doing your own science experiment there. <laughs> I'm a chemist by degree, so that comes oh, through sometimes. Of course. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks for calling. All right. Thanks, Good Craig. Luck. All right. Thank you. Yep. Bye bye. Take care. All right. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Ellen. Hi, Ellen. How can we help you today? I had some soup at a local historic restaurant, and it was a really simple chicken soup with cannoli beans and some greens in it. So I tried to replicate it at home using some chicken breast and the usual carrot. And at the end, I added beans and had opened a can and just rinsed and added them and added kale to the soup and put it in the refrigerator to use the next day or two. When I went to reheat the soup, it was horrible. It was inedible. It was so bitter and just tasted terrible. And I continue to see recipes using kale, but just wondering what it was <laughs> that I did. If there was something with the pH in the, in the broth, um, using beans, or what it was that made this soup so awful, just awful. Well, there's a reason that people make kale salad with a ton of dressing. <laughs> it is uh, somewhat naturally bitter, particularly when you cut it up. Did you mm -hmm. cook it in the soup? Was it cooked or did it go in raw or what happened? added it to the soup, and then, it, again, it cooled, and then I put it in jars for another day. Uh -huh. I've seen recipes where they use kale and sausage all the time, and I just was wondering, what what was a disaster, and what do I use the next time? Should I use something like just spinach, which uh, I wanted something with a little bit of more flavor, or um, no chard or what, you know, yeah. sort of added to the body of this soup, which right. was very good in the restaurant. Yeah. Chris, do you have any? Th yeah, oh, Chris is jumping ooh, up ooh, and down. Ooh, pick me, pick me. Okay, you over in the corner, you big tall guy. Uh, yeah, what I would do is the same thing I would do with a soup that has pasta in it, is I would add the kale or any other green to last. individual servings. We cook it separately, mm -hmm. steam it, whatever you want to mm -hmm. do, add it to the bowl, but you've not contaminated the main bowl that's going to go back in the fridge overnight because it will just right. turn bitter. The same thing with pasta. The pasta, you know, will absorb all the liquid in the soup overnight. Become mush. Become mush. So never include a green directly in the big pot of soup. Just add it at the end separately, and that way you can yeah. do the same thing the next day. Okay. I'll remember that. No, I've made the same mistake. Yeah. You spend a lot of time making a nice soup, and then you have a bunch left over, and you have some crusty bread and a bottle of wine, and whoops. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's really an easy solution. So. Well, good. All right. Okay. Well, Thank. remember that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling. Yes, yeah. thanks, Ellen. Okay, bye-bye. 
This is Mill Street Radio, coming up a New York Times book critic with a voracious appetite for literature and food. That's after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are. And I think 
that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Dwight Garner, author of The Upstairs Delicatessen, believes in afternoon naps, extremely dry martinis, peanut butter and pickle sandwiches, and his greatest pleasure of all, reading while eating. Dwight, welcome to Milk Street. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So your latest book, which I adore, is The Upstairs Delicatessen. Um, Where did the inspiration come from for that title? Yeah, you know, there's this great literary critic. He's sort of been forgotten. His name is Seymour Krim. And Seymour was was pretty well known in the 60s and 70s, maybe the 50s as well, sort of a downtown uh, literary critic in Manhattan. And he wrote a famous essay about failure. It's, it's called, I think it's called On the Failure Business. In, in the process of writing this, he has this great phrase. He refers to his own memory as, quote, this profuse upstairs delicatessen of mine. And I read that and I thought, that is great. Because, you know, we all have an upstairs delicatessen where we keep our memories and our great ideas. And and it just struck me as a perfect uh, title for a book like this one. I have about 20 pages of notes here <laughs> of things I want to talk to you about. So we're not going to get through them all. But you talk about reading and eating. They're always associated for you. Yeah. You know, ever since I was a kid, I, I, I've been an enormous reader and I've been a big eater my whole life, too. I was a pretty chubby kid. I'm a pretty chubby adult. Um, they just go together for me. I remember I had this ritual when I was a kid. I would come home from school and I, I was in a new town. I hadn't met, didn't have any friends yet, really. I would come home and drop a bunch of newspapers and books and magazines on the floor and then toddle into the kitchen and bring back a lot of food and, and try to make the three hours of reading and the three hours of food last so they sort of ended at the same time. So your book uh, is full of great quotes about food from other authors, and one of them was from Terry Eagleton. He's a British literary critic. He writes, food is endlessly interpretable as gift, threat, poison, recompense, barter, seduction, solidarity, suffocation. I have to say that's about as good a definition as I've ever come across. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, um, you know, I'm interested in all all the things that food means. I mean, it's like literature in a way that it rewards great care. You know, you know when you've been served writing that someone took time over and thought about in the same way that you're aware of someone serving you a really great meal. It doesn't have to be a complex meal, but you can sort of tell that someone put a little effort and love and in, in, in feeling into this. And it was sort of my life has been searching for those things, those things that are, are well-written, well-made, interesting. As you know, life is a process of discovering new flavors and, and new writers and new ways of looking at the world. And that's sort of what this book is about. You know, restaurant reviews over the years have gone through lots of iterations. And it started out people would just describe the meal they had, whether they liked the food, and then they became highly personal, and then they then they were supposed to be funny. And uh what what is a great book review? I mean, how, how do you you can't just describe a book or talk about whether you like it or not. You can't just tell the story of the book. What is a book review? 
Oh, it's such a such a good question, such a hard question. I mean, a good book review sort of needs to be a work of art on its own. And by work of art, I mean in a small way. But it needs to tell you some things about the book, of course. But I, I really dislike book reviews that are just plot description. And then you get to the end of the review, and it's plot, 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 this happens, this happens. And then, you know, the book's good, you know, or the book's okay. I, I just right. really loathe that kind of thing because books... You know, part of why reading matters is that during the course of reading, so many things go through your mind about all kinds of ideas, the, the subtopics that are talked about in the book, um, the characters. And I try to reflect, you know, what it's really like to be inside a book. And I try to single out the best lines, why this writing works. I try to import ideas of my own. I try to import the ways that um, this writer's stuff may be similar to or reliant on other writers, try to bring in other culture, bring in music. And to be a critic means to be omnivorous culturally because it all comes together in a way. You know, I want someone to walk away feeling like they've read something that's a real piece of writing and not just a sort of soggy description of what the book is about. Um, John Updike on food. It never bites back. It's already dead. It never tells us we are lousy lovers or asks us for an interview. It simply begs, take me, cries out, I'm yours. Maybe one of the best quotes in your book? Yeah. Um, Updike, I mean, I, I think he's, in, in my mind, probably the most gifted observer who has ever strolled planet Earth and written things down. Um, a lot of people have trouble with his work, but uh, he's just a genius of thought and feeling. You know, every every sentence that came out of him was, was somehow... Uh, resonant and extra. Food was not that important to him. He said that in his memoir. Although he uh, he used to write, um, he worked over a restaurant, and he said he knew when he smelled when he smelled the aroma of lunch coming up, it was time to quit for the day. So he he would work from eight until he smelled lunch cooking, and um, I like that. Well, they probably started cooking lunch at ten thirty, so it was a pretty nice schedule. <laughs> right, right. Um, Hunter S. Thompson, um, your wife's family, the next door neighbor was Hunter Thompson. <laughs> So I guess he was a frequent dinner guest at the your wife's house. Yeah, we have great photographs. They would have dinners outside in the summer, and he would when he got drunk, he would just get a a garden hose and spray everyone down. And there were, there are great <laughs> photos of Hunter sort of terrorizing my wife, who was all of five at the time. Um, but my wife grew up in a in a in a pretty elite food family in her way. Her father, Bruce Lefebvre, ran restaurants in uh, Aspen in the Napa Valley and in Idaho that were, you know, the kind of places people flew in, you know, uh, restaurant critics to to eat at. So she grew up taking frog's legs uh, in her school lunches. And, you know, I had my, I had my uh, cheese and bologna sandwich. You talk Keith Waterhouse, The Theory and Practice of Lunch, which is an absolutely spectacular title. And I, I, this is one of my favorite bits in the book, talking about lunch, uh, it is a conspiracy. It is a holiday. It is a euphoria made tangible, serendipity given form. Lunch at its lunchiest is the nearest it is possible to get to sheer bliss while remaining vertical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Keith Waterhouse, you know, wrote the book you mentioned and it's just a thin little primer, you know, that, that this British writer published about how to eat lunch. And it's just Mm. charming, small little book. Um, but you know, he's one of those big old school lunchers and you don't find this kind of lunch anymore. Even in literary circles in Manhattan, it's rare. You know, we're all kind of hardwired now to grab a quick sandwich or a cup of soup and get back to our desks. And I try, I, I, you know, I, I can't do it all the time, but I try once or twice a month to have a real lunch with a friend, to go somewhere decent and have a bottle of wine. And, you know, once in a while it stretches out a few hours and maybe the waiters are now looking at you and (laughs) hoping you'll leave soon. Um, I, I love this 
thing you wrote. A cup of coffee carves out a parenthesis in the day. If you can learn to shrink the hours between the morning's last cup and the evening's first drink, you've taken a baby step towards enlightenment. <laughs> Don't you agree? I mean, I, I think that's just everything in between sort of a grim, you know, gulag archipelago <laughs> until you end up with a martini at seven. Yeah. Well, Is that especially right? true, right, when you have family or guests around because you love your family, you love your friends when they're in town. But, you know, once the coffee ends, you start looking at each other going, what are we going to do today? Right. <laughs> How are we going to occupy this time? And once the drinks come out in the evening, you know where you are. You're all together and having a drink. So you know who you are and where you are at the coffee moments of the day and during the drink moments. It's filling those hours in between well. That's the hard part of living. Um, let's talk about martinis. You like <laughs> martinis. I believe you, you say every night at seven, you start with a martini. Yeah. Is that correct? I do. And, you know, my wife and I have cocktail hour late. We do it at seven. I think we do it late, A, because I like to work a little late. So I feel like I deserve my cocktail more. B, I like my martinis so much that I, I feel like pushing it back to seven means that I, it's harder to overdo it. <laughs> uh, the problem is if, if the dinner is especially great or if people are over, if the wine becomes a second glass or a third glass, then my morning at the desk right. might become an afternoon at the desk. And, and I don't like that anymore now that I'm 58. Um, Nathan Mirvold treated you to one of his private dinners with many very strange courses. I, I, I had, a, I think, a shorter version of what you went through years ago uh, at his place. What, what was your takeaway from eating his food? Well, we, sh- we should explain Microsoft guy wrote some amazing books on pizza and other things, the modernist cuisine, and has a laboratory where he pushes the uh, outer limits of science and cooking. Yeah, I was lucky to be invited as a journalist. He was cooking a meal in honor of his hero, Ferran Adria. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Okay. And, and so he was there. Adria was there. I was there. And it was 50 courses. And, um, <laughs> you know, and they were bigger than you might think and more wine than you might think. And after about 27, I was a little uncomfortable. After 36, I was sort of lowing <laughs> like a cow, you know. Um, but uh, I, I hated it. And no knock against Nathan Marvold. He, it was brilliant stuff he cooked. So I don't mean to knock it. I just, as an experience, it was too much. And, um, you know, part of the point that my book makes, I think, is what matters more in life is is who you eat with more than what you eat, right? Mm. You hope that these two things combine and you get to enjoy great food with the people you love. But given the choice of having a simple meal with people I really like to be around versus having Nathan Meyervold's food in front of people who didn't seem that happy to be there, I, anyway, I just wasn't a great day for me and it should have been. Fast food, quote, if you spend too much time in fast food world, you sense you're detaching from the literate world. And this is the bit I love here. The menus are pictures as if they were crime scene <laughs> photos. <laughs> Don't you ever feel, oh. That's really a brilliant description. Well, you know, I, I like fast food. Uh, it has its place. Um, but there are times in life when you feel trapped in a world oh, I don't know, maybe you're on the highway for too long and all you have to eat are, are the same fast food places and you feel yourself detaching from literacy. I mean, you just there's there are photos and not menus and and um, and the food is just not good and it sort of drags your spirit down after a while. I mean, a, a good McDonald's hamburger, bring it on, I'll have it, you know, sometimes. But um, when when that's all you have access to, you just feel yourself dragging down. And I, I, I feel that way about books too. I mean, I, I just, I mean, I, I have to read books for a living. But when you read bad books, prose for too long, that can also drag you down. I mean, you pick up a book by a good writer and suddenly all of your senses are alert again, the way they are with a terrifically made meal. Suddenly you're just awake and that's what, you know, the good stuff does to you. Okay. I've got to ask you about the peanut butter and pickle sandwich. Um, You made yourself infamous for this and took a a lot of heat. 
but please, I, look, I'm open to try anything. So, so sell me on this idea. I, okay, here's the thing. Um, I grew up watching my father eat peanut butter and pickle sandwiches, and I thought it was terrible. And then I got to be in my 30s, and one day I couldn't find anything for lunch, and I made one, and it was okay, and made another one. And I, I write, I think, in my piece that there's something off-putting just in the notion of them. It was kind of like when Lyle Lovett married uh, Julia Roberts. You know, like, this doesn't, something doesn't, something's not right here. Um, but actually, the flavor combination, I think, is just a step up from peanut butter and jelly. It's just more sophisticated. It has flavor hints of things like satays and moles and other cultures do things that are almost similar. Um, the reason I love the sandwich is that it's always there for you. And it's a great thing. Maybe the cold cuts are all gone and there's no takeout left and no leftovers and and there's nothing good in the house. I always know this a peanut butter pickle sandwich and I think it's it's world class. Well, there are a lot of things that are always there for you that really are not delightful in life though, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, maybe, but don't we all have peanut butter in the house and pickles usually? I don't know. I mean, I don't always have other things that are that delicious. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm not going to make fun of you. I'll, I'm going to go eat one and then I'll Oh, I'll please. No, no, I can or, take or it. Or praise oh, oh, you. Oh, oh, trust me. I've been sneered at by the best newspapers in the world. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I revere your, your culinary uh, knowledge, but I, I'm indestructible <laughs> at this point on this topic. <laughs> Dwight, it's been uh, an honor, a pleasure, and enormously entertaining. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you for having me. That was Dwight Garner, writer and book critic for The New York Times. His latest book is The Upstairs Delicatessen on eating, reading, reading about eating, and eating while reading. You know, it's really hard not to love eccentrics. Henry Paget, a wealthy 19th century lord, spent himself into bankruptcy by mounting amateur theatrical productions and driving a car that emitted perfume from the exhaust pipe. John Overs faked his own death to save on provisions. His family and servants would, of course, fast that day out of respect and save him the cost of a few meals. But when he reappeared in the evening, one of his servants thought he was a ghost and hit him over the head with an oar, killing him. William Buckland liked to feast on endangered species, from elephants and panthers to porpoises and crocodiles. The rumor was that he also ate the preserved heart of King Louis XVI. And of course, now there is the modern-day Dwight Garner, who drinks martinis every night at the stroke of seven and plays a card game, Spite and Malice, where the objective is to annoy your partner, in this case, his wife. Eccentrics are not crazy. They are joyfully obsessed with creating their own special world. And as my mother often said, what's so good about reality anyway? I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. After the break, we plunder the kitchen for Old Norse Words with Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's coming up. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. 
and the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch to talk about this week's recipe, Pakistani-style chicken with biryani. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Biryani, you went to Pakistan to get a few lessons in this, and a good thing, because I've made it a few times. But it tends to be more porridge than a sophisticated, <laughs> multi-layered dinner. So what did you learn? And I hope you learned not to do it my way. <laughs> you know, despite my instinct in cooking, which is to just dump and go— that's the exact opposite of what you want to do with biryani. And Pakistani cooks are quite adamant that the most important part of biryani is the layering. They layer the ingredients in terms of the order in which they cook them, the order in which they go in the pan, and it creates layers of differences in texture and flavor in the finished dish. So a proper biryani is not porridge. It's actually a layer of textures, a layer of flavors. Many of the same ingredients used on repeat, but at different times and in different ways. Is it just a function of translation that what we have here doesn't hew to the original concept, or is this something that is more specific to Pakistan in terms of how they layer it? You know, I think part of the problem is that as American home cooks, we're always looking for shortcuts. And I think we tend, and our recipes tend, to do exactly what I do, dump and go. And... 
real traditional Pakistani biryani requires careful cooking of one or two ingredients at a time. Take it out of the pot. Cook the next couple of ingredients. Do the onions in the ghee. Do the chicken. Do the spices. Parboil the rice one at a time, and then you reassemble them back into the pot in a specific order. Now, that's a lot of work at home. Wonderful at a restaurant, not so much at home. But I learned a special variety of biryani called matka biryani. Now, matka is both the name of the dish, it's also the name of the pot that the dish is cooked in, which is kind of a rotund clay pot, for lack of a better way of putting it. And in this case, most of the ingredients are prepped in advance and then just thrown together in the pot and thrown over the fire and cooked all at once. Not so much the fussing about pre-cooking them and, and then assembling them. It's kind of just putting them all in the pot, and traditionally they do it over coal fire, and sealing the pot and throwing it on top of the coals and letting it go. We learned both a traditional biryani and this matka biryani, and we decided that for our version, we really wanted to kind of combine the best of both worlds. And so that's what our recipe did. And Now, obviously, we're not using a matka pot in ours, but we found that a Dutch oven could do an excellent job of kind of replicating the same conditions. So in short, what are the different flavors here? There's obviously the spices, there's ginger, et cetera, garlic. You have a lot of different flavors and they all speak out. You can taste each one of them. Well, that's the beauty of it. So you have onions that are caramelized, really caramelized in ghee. Delicious. You definitely get those. Then you have a lot of whole spices. You have bay leaves, you have black peppercorns, you have cloves, green and black cardamom, cinnamon sticks, cumin seeds. You definitely feel and taste those. It's a wonderful texture as well as taste. Then, of course, you get the punches of the fresh ginger and the fresh garlic, which often are bloomed in that same ghee. Then you get the tender bits of chicken, but then you get kind of the sweet acidity and freshness of some tomato slices, some lemon slices. You also get yogurt in there. And then, of course, you get the wonderful Mm. basmati rice that absorbs all of that and kind of ties it all together. Now, One of the best parts, and we have seen this in the cooking of both India and Pakistan, and it always fascinates me the difference it makes, is the different ways they treat their spices. And biryani is all about treating spices as many ways as possible. They use whole spices. They use ground spices, often both of the same spice. They use them raw and they use them toasted. They use them early in the cooking and they use them late in the cooking. And again, all of this often is the same spices on repeat. But because they use them in different forms and at different times in the cooking, you get different flavors from each one. So again, like you're getting all these different layers of complexity from the same ingredients. That's really what I loved about this dish. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. I like them whole, I like them ground, I like them raw, I like them cooked. (laughs) Yes, I love my spices, Sam, I am. Jam, thank you, a Pakistani-style chicken biryani, light years beyond what I'm used to. A bit of work, but I think absolutely worth it. Thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for Pakistani-style chicken biryani at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Right now, let's check in with Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant, Martha, what's going on this week? 
Hey, Chris. This week, Grant and I want to go way back in history. Climb aboard a boat with us. We're going to ride with the Old Norse and talk about their contributions to the English language and food, of course. Okay. So, as you might expect from a seafaring people, they left some fishy words. So, fry, as in small fry, meaning fish. That fry word comes from Old Norse. Hmm. And skate the fish, not skate as in the ice sport or as in the roller sport. That also comes from Old Norse. Hmm. And then the scale that you would use to weigh that fish gets its name from an Old Norse word meaning bowl. And that word, skal, is related to skol, which is the cheer, the toast that you give uh, in Scandinavian countries when you are drinking alcohol. And that refers to the bowl or the vessel holding the alcohol. So they, they weren't just out pillaging. They were actually doing some heavy lifting in the language department. That's good. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you, you show up and you're like, ugh, I don't want to go home. It's too far. <laughs> it's across the water. Um, and when you stick around, what do you got to do? You got to eat. And so one of the things they did is they turned to the animals. And you might be imagining great halls with roaring fires right. and animals turning on spits. Well, the animals on those spits might be turned into steaks. S-T-E-A-K-S, and they might be on stakes, S-T-A-K-E, and both of those words come from the same Old Norse word, S-T-E-I-K-J-A. And in Old Norse, that meant to roast on a spit. And so that word not only gave us steak, as in the food, the meat, but also steak, as in a long piece of wood with a pointed end, and stick, as in, you know, a small piece of wood off of a tree. Stick a steak into a steak. Okay. And steak and steak are distant relatives of words like instigate, you know, when you're sort of poking at somebody. And Hmm. stigma, which uh, is left Hmm. in your hand, you know, something sharp goes into it. But speaking of sharp things, there's also the word knife. That one also comes to us from Old Norse. It blends with an Old English word that uh, was similarly pronounced. The Old English word was kniff. And the Old Norse word sounded like kniffer, something like that, because the C and the K at the beginning of those words was pronounced. And was like that uh, in a lot of English dialects until the 1600s or so. Hmm. And you'll find again and again that an Old Norse word would push out an Old English word. The best case that I know of is the word egg. There is a really great story that the lexicographer William Caxton tells in 1490. And it's about a ship that was anchored in a Thames estuary near London. And the sailors come ashore and they ask for eggis. That's the plural of eggs in the dialect they spoke. And a woman going about her business answered him, and she said, I don't speak French. <laughs> and the sailor's angry, he says, because I don't speak French either. Uh, but he wanted eggs, and she didn't understand him saying eggis. But another sailor instead asked her for erin. And she says, oh, yes, so oh, those I do have. And the problem was is that these two words meaning eggs, one Old Norse derived and one Old English, existed at the same time for a very huh. long time. And it hadn't yet been settled, which would win. Ultimately, the Old Norse word won out. But at this time in 1490, there was still kind of this push-pull. And this happened again and again as the Norse words kind of pushed down from the north and pushed out some Old English words. So all of this influence came because of the the Vikings or Norse sailing to Britain, to England, and living there. 
Yeah, and it wasn't just England. It was all throughout every island that they could reach from Scandinavia. Every bit of shoreline east, west, mm. south, as far as they could go, felt their influence. And you can see it linguistically throughout the Netherlands, all of Scandinavia, Finland, parts of Russia, Iceland, of course, and Greenland. It's all there. Um, they've at, at the core of these languages, even today, you'll find these kernels <laughs> of influence. Um, and, and corn and kernel are two other words that come from Old Norse. And actually corned beef, believe it or not. The corn in corned beef refers to corns or lumps of salt being used to preserve the meat. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. And one more Old Norse word or a word that has Old Norse roots for something that's in your kitchen is the word kettle. Now, I don't know about you all, but um, we watch a lot of English mysteries and comedies in our house, and we kind of have a drinking game. Every time somebody says, shall I put kettle on or I'm going to put the kettle on, <laughs> we take a drink. But kettle is yet another word that uh, was handed down to us through Old Norse. So, Chris, to end this party, I just want to hand you a bit of cake. Cake is another word that was most likely adopted into English from Old Norse, pushing out another English word, just pushing it right out of the nest like a cuckoo bird. But here, Chris, is a piece of Old Norse cake. You can have it with your steak and your eggs, and I hope this is a good meal for you. Grand Martha, it was a little corny, but uh, it was <laughs> very informative. Thank you. Our pleasure. Our pleasure, Chris. Take care. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for today, but please don't forget you can find more than 250 episodes of our show wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about everything we have to offer at Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get all of our recipes access to our live stream cooking classes, and learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Simple. Check us out on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Zinzibah. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chew Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.